Good afternoon. It's Friday the 10th of June 2022. It's, uh, well, quite a bit after 1 o'clock, 20 past 1. I do apologise once again. We had a technical problem in the studio today and uh, that was a tricky one to sort out. Uh, welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and we're hoping to have uh, Vanessa Bailey with us as well, uh, but it looks like uh, she's uh, disappeared, so we're not having much success technically today anyway. But let's get on with the news. And, uh, of course, uh, Ukraine and Russia or Ukraine versus Russia. Uh, and NATO. An update. And, and NATO. NATO. Yes. <laughs> and NATO. Yeah, there's an update. Well, the big story that's uh, plastered all over the headlines in the UK today uh, is the two uh, POWs on trial in Donbass. Here's the Daily Mail. Uh, quite a lot of outrage there. UK is outraged at two Britons facing firing squad, Mike. Nobody knew about this yesterday. But we're told that the UK is outraged yes. today and uh, leave the most vociferous for the so-called left-wing tabloid, the mirror, a bastion of great journalism, sentenced to death by Putin. But wait a minute, they're not in Russia and it's not Putin who's sentencing them. Indeed. So let's, uh, let's bring them on screen then. Here they are, sentenced to death. Uh, behind bars, um, and uh, well, what can we say? This is Aidan uh, Aylan and, uh, or, sorry, Aslan from uh, Nottinghamshire, and uh, Sean Pinner uh, from Bedfordshire, and uh, there's a third. Uh, yes, he's from Morocco, um, and uh, we don't have his name to hand. Right, okay, so uh, Aidan claims he surrendered, and uh, that he had hoped that would contribute to a more lenient sentence, but it, it hasn't. Uh, and then, of course, he uh, was picked up in April, uh, and both of them uh, then subsequently appeared uh, asking for a prisoner swap. So let's just run through the key uh, points here. Uh, first of all, uh, British government demands that uh, Aslan and Pinner are treated as prisoners of war under the Geneva Conventions. Uh, but uh, Britain is not formally at war with the DPR. Uh, and of course, that's who picked them up, the uh, the military of the Democratic People's Republic of Donetsk. That's right. right. Yep. Uh, and uh, so Britain's not formally at war with them. Uh, DPR maintains that uh, conventions only apply to uniformed soldiers of a national military, not foreign ministries. Now, that's not just their claim, is it? No, that's, the, well, th again, we spoke about this when the story broke weeks ago. We said this is going to come down to the legal determination. Yes. And this could be, this could be argued in UK courts. This could be argued in the European courts. This could be argued in some kind of international tribunal. But as it stands at the moment, this is the way the DPR, this newly proclaimed uh, republic, autonomous republic, this is how they are reading the situation. And this is the big question. Is the UK government going to engage with the DPR or not, or through a third party? It's going to be much more difficult for these two gentlemen if it's through a third party, I would I would think. Okay, so let's bring that back on screen. Uh, and uh, well, Aslan, Pinner, and uh, well, there's Sadoon. the Moroccan Sadoun, uh, all pled guilty under Article 232 of the DPR Code uh, for, quotes, undergoing training for the purpose of carrying out terrorist activities. Uh, and then uh, let's see the next one. Uh, Pinner also pled guilty to Article 323 charge, uh, the act of seizing power by force. Um, all three have denied being mercenaries in an armed conflict uh, or participating in a conspiracy. Uh, under DPR laws, uh, forcible seizure of power carries a penalty of 12 to 20 years behind bars or capital punishment uh, if due to the aggravating circumstances of a war. Uh, and uh, if they appeal, the capital punishment should be or could be reduced 
up to up to 25 years in prison. It, I understand that the families of these two uh, gents are going to appeal or they're going to try to put in some kind of appeal. Uh, but of course, the mainstream press very much suggesting that because this isn't an internationally recognized court, then who knows what could be the outcome of that. Uh, and then finally here, let's put this back. Uh, in April, both men appeared in videos, as I said, asking to be part of a prisoner swap in exchange for uh, a, a Russian, very close friend of Vladimir Putin. Viktor Medvedchuk, yeah. So it was this uh, Ukrainian sort of so-called so opposition, but more friendly towards Russia, apparently. Okay. Apparently. Uh, and finally, then, uh, the Foreign Office has said this morning that they are going to consider summoning the Russian ambassador uh, to make, well, I've said, idle threats uh, over the death sentence. The question is, uh, what do you think, just before we come on to what Liz Truss had to say about this, uh, do you think this is likely to end up as part of a prisoner swap? I think so. I think so. Look, but, but here's the problem. <laughs> here's the problem. If the if the UK government will deal directly with Donetsk, with the DPR, they will uh, be able to do what I think is a more clean uh, agreement, whatever that agreement's going to be. Okay, the leverage is clear. You've got two sides. But what the British government are more likely to do, Mike, is that they won't necessarily go through Russia or Russia is going to defer to the DPR. Um, they could go through Russia or they could go through Ukraine. They could go through Kiev. That's going to be a lot more complicated mm -hmm. because I'll tell you something, uh, Kiev is going to want something in return as well. And who knows what that will be with the state of that government there and this circus that's going on led by uh, Zelensky. Mm. So it's going to be a lot more complicated and who knows, Britain might be compelled or made to do something that maybe it didn't want to initially do uh, before that, or at least promise something. I guess you could just promise Kiev heaven and earth. That's probably good enough at this point. But a desperate situation for these two. They, they're all going to appeal, of course. They, they do stand a chance of uh, perhaps getting some kind of leniency. On the appeal, so it's you know the story's not over yet, but this is a definitely a dire situation. I dare say, Mike, this is going to send a very strong message to a lot of foreign fighters and soldiers of fortune out there looking for a little adventure in Ukraine. Um, so let's bring Liz Truss's tweet up on screen. I utterly condemn the sentencing of Aidan Aslan and Sean Pinner, held by Russian proxies in eastern Ukraine. That's her claim that uh, they're held by Russian proxies. Okay. Uh, they are prisoners of war, she said. This is a sham judgment with absolutely no legitimacy. My thoughts are with the families. Uh, we continue to do everything we can to support them. Well, of course, uh, they were probably there mainly or certainly a contributory factor was likely to be Liz Truss's uh, suggestion that everybody get over there as quickly as possible right at the very beginning of this thing. Well, uh, to, and so she must bear some, if not all, responsibility for this. Well, to, uh, they were there. Uh, they were there. In fairness to that situation, they were there before uh, the, the, the conflict broke out, th this, this phase of the conflict in February. Right. Um, so they had established some uh, residency or whatnot uh, in Ukraine from uh, 2018, I believe. Uh, before that, they were uh, running around Syria with the Kurdish Democratic Forces, supposedly fighting ISIS. So these are soldiers of fortune. So, But Liz Truss did make that initial statement publicly. Mm. She said that the British government supports uh, anybody going to fight the good fight, uh, so to speak, uh, in Ukraine. So it's very, again, very difficult to walk that initial statement back. I know she has. I know the government has tried to, but she said it. Uh, and that was that was that was the um, uh, that was the viewpoint of the media at that time. Mm. They were absolutely encouraging it. So they they all bear some responsibility 
for this situation. Mike, they could have not fought or they could have possibly stepped back had they uh, not had that green light from the British government initially. Who knows? But it, it's a very messy situation. The government can't claim to have completely clean hands. Um, Vanessa, maybe we could welcome you to the program. Have you got any thoughts on this uh, on this decision? Well, I mean, it's interesting, but I think uh, one month uh, before there was a decision to sentence uh, a Russian prisoner of war to life imprisonment uh, with very little background as to his case and the evidence against him. Um, can you hear me okay? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're immediately seeing a degree of hypocrisy because that passed totally below the radar of the so-called Human Rights Brigade, right? Um, as Pat mentioned, all or the majority of these mercenaries now fighting in Ukraine were fighting uh, alongside the Kurdish Contras and the U.S. intelligence and British intelligence in northeast Syria. So they were effectively responsible for, in part, for the ethnic cleansing of Arabs, Assyrians, and Armenians in northeast Syria. And now, as far as I understand, all of them were involved at the front lines, um, targeting, uh, in fact, I think it was Pinner who was uh, discovered to have been a sniper. Uh, so, you know, they were responsible for the actual war crimes against the people of Donetsk and Lugansk. And as such, these, these guys do what they do for money. They don't do it for ideology. They are not covered by the Geneva Conventions. They are effectively um, rogue elements in these wars that, that should be, in my view, punished for the crimes they commit against civilians of the countries that they are being paid to fight in. Yes. Well, look, uh, let's rem uh, just remind ourselves where Aidan Aslan, his, his evolution of thought since he's uh, come into captivity. He's doing live streams on social media, by the way, while he's in captivity. So it's not like the Russians aren't treating their POWs with all sorts of extra perks. But uh, here he is here. Let's just take a look at what he said uh, initially. Uh, and this is Aidan there, Aidan Aslan. And he's this headline here, British mercenary says he was duped into Ukrainian conflict by Western media. So as soon as he was captured, he's made a number of statements publicly, said, I am a mercenary. He said that explicitly multiple times in the various media opportunities that he had. And here he's saying uh, he was originally pro-Russian, pro-Donbass. He supported Crimea's unification, reunification with Russia and believes the people of Donbass have a right to independence. Uh, but this is what happened, he said. Uh, my views started to change after I started seeing media reports and stuff that was basically saying that it was not locals, but the Russian soldiers that were doing everything in Donbass, everything bad, I imagine, uh, Aslan admitted, adding that he was watching CNN. So he's sort of saying he's, he was propagandized yes. uh, into his more radical stance uh, to fight alongside the Azov uh, Nazi uh, battalions. Of course, nobody in the British government wants to say the word Nazi in Ukraine in the same sentence because isn't that so embarrassing? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and here we have two guys fighting alongside the Azov battalion. So, and they were caught, unfortunately. Uh, again, very, very dire situation uh, for these two. Okay, uh, so where does that take us then? Well, that takes us to this story. What else is going on in Ukraine? Uh, Eva Bartlett, independent journalist, we all know uh, Eva, uh, certainly our viewers and listeners do. She's Canadian and uh, she posted this. She's been contacted uh, for a hit piece here by NBC News. 
recently. So all of a sudden, an interest in Eva Bartlett by the mainstream media. And so if you're able to uh, screenshot this and read it later, but basically this is the MB NBC reporter fishing here for a statement from Eva. It's the usual thing. They give a loaded question. You know, you, uh, we, we're told that you're doing, uh, you know, pro-Kremlin uh, disinformation or propaganda or something to that effect. And you have two hours to respond to yes. us before we go to print. Same sort of story. Here's the hit piece right here. Uh, the headline reads, Russian propaganda efforts aided by pro-Kremlin content creators research finds. <laughs> so this is one of those school leavers, university um, students just graduated, probably very young, given the dirty work of running smear pieces on independent journalists, much like Olivia Solon from The Guardian. And who knows, they probably admittedly don't pay them enough to do this sort of dirty work. Mm -hmm. But this is how you get up the greasy pole of the mainstream media here. And uh, this is very revealing, though. This shows you where the government, where big tech is heading right now right. in terms of censorship. Let's look at this. Mo th this is what they're saying. They're talking about their deplatforming efforts to get Russian state media and RT, et cetera, Sputnik taken off uh, YouTube, uh, uh, banned in Europe, banned in the UK. They're boasting about it in this article. And then they add here, most of these efforts focused on official Russian government and state media accounts. That plan, while partially effective, misses a major vector of Kremlin disinformation, according to the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. They don't want much dialogue as far as we can see here. A London-based think tank that produces this research here, and they go on, and here's the important bit. The current strategy is too focused on explicit affiliation with the Kremlin. State media accounts and outlets, journalists, with explicit affiliations, embassies, and consulates, says Melanie Smith from this think tank. It misses the large volume of content coming from actors that can reach huge audiences very quickly and spread pro-Kremlin disinformation without the state actually having to be directly involved. So they're basically saying it's not enough to wipe off any Russian media off the airwaves. We need to go after content creators, that have pro-Kremlin views. Uh, and, but the question is, what is a pro-Kremlin view? And you know, my experience of this is, from the people that are making these types of, uh, of these accusations, is that a pro-Kremlin view is any view which is critical of NATO, the United Kingdom, the United States, the EU, and their approach to this whole thing, that immediately becomes a pro-Kremlin view. That's right. No matter what you think about Russia, whether you're pro-Russia or pro-Putin or not, doesn't make any difference. You can despise Russia, but you'll still be pro-Kremlin if you're criticizing your own government for its activities. Just like when you're against uh, mandatory vaccines, for example, like Michael Gunner from the Australia's uh, Northern Territory, you're an anti-vaxxer. Even if you're triple-vaxxed, if you're against mandatory vaccines, you're an anti-vaxxer. You remember that? Yes. Same type of logic, okay? And not only that, it's anybody who sympathizes with the Russian argument, mm. that's pro-Kremlin, according to these people, uh, and you know any dissident view whatsoever. Um, it's basically this, any, and anything that's the source of information comes from Russia, um, it's automatically disinformation. Yes. So it doesn't matter if it's true or not, doesn't matter if it's factual, because it came from RT, it's then deemed to be disinformation here. And they go on and it gets even more interesting. Content creators and social media influencers have emerged this past year as one of the newer avenues of disinformation. So they've just discovered this new uh, uh, tranche here, this, this 
this gold mine of disinformation that they can now collect state money and grants from foundations to go and stamp out. It's a great business, the disinformation fighting business. So ISD also named Eva Bartlett, a Canadian activist who previously published conspiracy theories alleging Syrian rescue workers, known as the White Helmets, were staging fake attacks during the Syrian civil war. So you can see where this thing is heading straight away, right? Uh, so they, the, and, and Eva says they sort of discredited themselves. That's true. And here's the hit piece. Bartlett isn't employed by RT, the Russian state-controlled news outlet. She's written op-eds for their website, and she makes videos with RT correspondents. Uh, and sh here's this, shares archived versions of RT content to get around the platforms who've blocked Russian state media. Mm -hmm. So sharing RT content is now a crime. Yes. According to NBC News. Really disgusting stuff here. And this is really interesting. Facebook labeled Bartlett's posts with the disclaimer she may be partially or wholly under the editorial control of the Russian government. Now, that's what Facebook is putting on her posts. I would have said that was defamatory. It is, and it's being basically regurgitated uh, by this so-called journalist from NBC News. So they're referencing each other, the fact checkers, some anonymous Facebook admin, and then this uh, school-leaving journalist from NBC. They're all referencing each other. It's like one right. giant circle jerk, okay? It's really disgusting. Anyway, CBC is also interested uh, in Eva Bartlett here. They're, they're fishing here. They want to discuss, we want to discuss your involvement with the International Public Tribunal on Ukraine in Moscow in April. So this is a war crimes tribunal there. I, I assume Eva was an observer or she was covering it. They somehow think that she's in, uh, involved with it or something like that. That's a Canadian uh, broadcasting company. And so why all this, why all this interest in Eva right now? Uh, anything to do with mass graves, for example? It could be, but, but it's, it, it's coming uh, strangely at the exact same time that she's been put on a kill list by the Ukrainian radicals. And uh, here it is in Ukrainian. Let's just uh, translate this. Eva Bartlett's been put on this notorious list where they uh, dox and uh, list journalists and people, enemies of the state, uh, opposition to Zelensky, anybody criticizing their uh, military or their foreign policy or negotiations or anything like that gets put on these uh, horrible lists, okay? And they're, they're renowned for this, by the way, in the Ukraine. Mm. The, these sort of lists didn't start with this war. They've been going for years, and the British, the U.S., the NATO members have turned a blind eye to it. They don't care about what's been done to journalists in Ukraine over the years. They really don't care. Right. In fact, they endorse it because we're told these days by our liberal compatriots that silence is violence. So if you're not protesting these kill lists, it means you endorse them. Mm -hmm. So that's the flowering democracy of uh, the Zelensky regime right there. Kill lists for independent journalists who are reporting in Donbass. Um, so uh, Vanessa, uh, Eva was on the UK column news at one point, of course, reporting on her trip to North Korea. So the question then is, is she under the editorial control of Moscow, or is she, uh, in fact, a tool of the North Koreans? <laughs> well, I mean, she's also been to, to Venezuela and to the occupied territories, to, to Syria, to Iraq. I mean, you know, this is 
these days, it's almost as if, one, if you challenge the establishment narrative in the West, and two, you dare to, to leave your office and actually go to visit the areas that they are targeting, to witness events on the ground and to report testimony from the civilians they disappear, you become an agent of disinformation. The reality is they are the ones producing the disinformation and disappearing those civilian voices. And by making you an agent of disinformation, for me, actually, this shows their desperation. This shows that they are afraid of these people that they like to dismiss as obscure bloggers or activists or um, uh, Kremlin agents. They, they like to put these labels to try and discredit and to smear. And we know through history of them trying to do this over the last six years, it doesn't work. Indeed, it certainly doesn't. No, it doesn't. But unfortunately, they keep doing it. Uh, and we're going to hopefully have a conversation uh, with Eva this Sunday. Uh, so tune into uh, the Sunday Wire if you're able to. This is at 21stCenturyWire.com. This is a radio show and a podcast that I do every week uh, on Sunday. I know some of our listeners don't know about it. So we're just uh, pointing you to this new pro this program. It's been going for eight years. Yeah. Uh, and Eva Bartlett, we're going to have a great conversation. I'm very much looking forward to that. And that's at 5 p.m. UK time and uh, 12, 12 p.m. Eastern uh, Standard Time for you in the U.S. Okay. Um, that brings us on to uh, the battle for... Uh... Slavonetsk. So let's take a look back. Just a quick update on what's going on uh, in the Donbass. A little war update uh, with Ukraine. The uh, battle for uh, Slavonetsk. Th this was very active during the Civil War. Uh, this is now uh, the front one of the front line, the new emerging front line here. This is very, very significant. This is uh, very symbolic as well. This this particular location, um, there was blood spilt here before, um, so this is hugely, hugely important. Um, so let's just take a quick look here at what's going on with the battle map. And there's Slavonyansk and Krem Krematorsk, and those are really key for a number of reasons strategically. Uh, because of the assets there, the airport as well uh, in that region, and the fact that they could break the back and really potentially isolate a huge number of Ukrainian military assets that are further in the east there. And they're really knocking on the door at that point um, of moving on to places like uh, Kharkiv. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's significant. So that's what's going on. That's why the Western media is in a panic. So meanwhile, Ukraine is shelling civilian areas of Donetsk uh, in the last 48 hours. Um, so again, this is from Rudenko's uh, telegram channel here. And uh, you can see some of the footage there. Let's take a closer look. Uh, warning, there's some graphic scenes here. Um, but so you can see the Ukrainian uh, armed forces with their Western weapons are basically not great at targeting, uh, apparently, or they're just uh, firing randomly. Um, to civilian areas. What is this but terrorism uh, at the end of the day? Um, but this has become a regular uh, scene for people in the Donbass. No surprise. It's unfortunate. It's tragic. But they're not surprised by this. And, right. and it continues um, to this day. And uh, here's Reuters. We thought we'd point this out. This one is very interesting here. Uh, Reuters is saying a local resident inspects the uh, damage van a damaged van following a military strike amid Russia's attack on Ukraine at the residential area near uh, Kharkiv. And let's just take a look at that Reuters photo here. A little close up there. He's not just any resident, is he, Mike? Uh, he looks like he's been working out and he's a Nazi. 
So <laughs> she's probably military, uh, probably with the Azov or Idar battalion. And then he's posed for this staged photo. It looks like a typical staged photo, uh, a Reuters special there from the war zone. And I mean, they forgot to cover up his tattoo. They forgot to, well, they, yeah, they just missed that little bit. There. Yes. But, uh, you know, he might just be a Hitler enthusiast, might not be an Azov battalion member. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. What do you say? Uh, if you wish. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, move on then. And NATO, and uh, well, NATO has been talking, of course, NATO is expanding. So here is uh, Camille Grant, who is the uh, Deputy uh, Secretary General. Uh, and uh, well, he was speaking a day or two ago and was asked about uh, the use of uh, Sweden and Finland, perhaps for nuclear weapons. Uh, and uh, this is what he had to say. Every country is free in the nuclear field to deploy or not to deploy such weapons. We're not talking about setting up some principal restrictions on the possible actions of the alliance, that's NATO. Uh, and he said, every NATO member country decides the issue of this issue sovereignly, if there's such a word. Uh, but I don't think uh, that in the current situation it's necessary to give Russia any guarantees regarding our military posture in the region. So uh, this is the position of NATO now. Uh, basically, we will uh, place nuclear weapons in Sweden and Finland if they make the sovereign decision to allow us to, uh, and tough luck to Russia. So this rolls back basically 70 years of uh, diplomatic uh, precedent. Right. Uh, it's not up to you as a state. You, you have to basically contend and negotiate with neighboring states on a situation like that. And if it is a trigger for war, if it, if it causes uh, 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 military uh, interventions as a result of that, you have to accept that that's on you. Mm. So th no state exists uh, as an island. And I know NATO likes to say that, oh, Ukraine, they're, they're, it's up to them to decide their destiny. I mean, let's not let this joke run any further than it already has. Mm. And let me just give a perfect example, okay? So what about Israel, okay? What about Israel and how it is uh, uh, treating Iran? with a suspected nuclear program. It reserves the right to attack it any time of the day, any day of the year. Mm. And they have done, and they've assassinated nuclear scientists. They're fully justified, according to the United States, in taking this position. Uh, so where is this NATO rhetoric vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel and Iran? I would like to know. And by the way, what about Israel's nuclear arsenal that they haven't declared? That's not allowed to be inspected by the international Atomic Energy Agency. Just some questions. Yeah, Vanessa. Yeah, I also just wanted to point out where is the outrage about Israel's um, systematic attacks on Syria? 4 a.m. this morning, they attacked Damascus International Airport. They uh, almost destroyed the runway. Um, all planes now are having to be rerouted to Aleppo. Um, now, this has been an ongoing preparation for war by Israel probably for the last year, destroying air defenses, uh, radar, early warning equipment, military bases, uh, the killing or assassination of high-level officers in the Syrian Arab Army and Air Force. Now, as I said, the targeting of Damascus International Airport, which is a civilian airport. Where is the outrage from yeah. the international community or even the reporting of this? Yes, <laughs> indeed. Okay, let's, let's move on to the US and Europe then, uh, Patrick. Well, just an extension of the, uh, the situation, Russia, Russian sanctions, how this is affecting the West. And there's some incredible theories and statements coming out of, uh, let's say, the U.S. Treasury 
in this case. Let's look at Janet Yellen here. And uh, I have to say, she said some incredible things about inflation recently that sort of go against uh, normal economic theory. <laughs> but nonetheless, the U.S. is in talks with Europeans on ways to limit Russian oil revenues. This is interesting. So the EU is playing this embargo on Russian oil by sea. They're still piping it in. But uh, Yellen's got a new theory, and that's uh, we need to uh, we'll let the oil flow, um, but we need to somehow control the price to limit Russian revenues. It's kind of bizarre, but uh, Ursula von der Leyen's singing the same tune. Uh, the U.S. officials aim to keep Russian oil flowing into the global market to hold down price. That's an interesting one. I think they've just made this up. Uh, and to avoid a spike that could cause a worldwide recession. Well, that worldwide recession is already happening. So a little bit too late there, Janet Yellen. But absolutely, the objective is to limit revenue going to Russia. So I have bad news for Janet Yellen. By the way, this is going going to go down history as the most incompetent uh, yes. economic planner, head of the Treasury. I can't believe that she was head of the Fed. She doesn't appear to know anything. And if she's in that bad of shape, um, mentally, she should retire. Mm. She should not be in charge of the U.S. economy. She, it's dangerous. Yeah, but the same thing could be said about the president. But anyway, let's let's move on. Or Nancy Pelosi. Yes. The, the list goes on. Uh, what about limiting those Russian revenues? Well, well, let's take a look at this. That's not really going to happen. Russian oil revenues are up for this time from 2021, from this time last year. After this war, Revenues are up, yeah. okay, and they're pumping more. And it's not because they're taking the highest price. They're giving massive discounts. Look at this to India. India wants more Russian oil, and they want it at the fixed costs. And India, uh, private refineries are buying it uh, at, at a cut rate and refining it, turning it into petroleum right. and right. gas and things like that. So Russian revenue is not suffering. It's actually they're doing better than they did in 2021. So our economies are getting hammered. Right, we're 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 suffering inflation. Russia's revenues are up, and and sanctions were going to send a strong message to Putin. Right, remember all that? Absolutely. So this is Senator uh, John Kennedy from Louisiana. He's always good for a soundbite. This is what he has to say about the gas prices. Uh, Biden's Biden saying it's Putin's price hike. They're still sticking to that party line in America. Putin's price hike. So they're still saying inflation is because of Putin. Let's listen to what Senator Kennedy has to say. President Biden continues to campaign for more economic chaos. Meanwhile, I don't know about where you live, Jesse, but uh, in, in my state, the price of gas is so high that it would be cheaper to buy cocaine and just <laughs> run everywhere. So that soundbite got a little bit of attention, of course. Yes. But, um, you know, he's not far wrong. It is just getting ridiculously expensive. I just spoke to somebody uh, from uh, London. He just paid 120, 25 pounds to fill up his tank. Yes. Uh, and there's not much difference between diesel uh, and, 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 and petrol, and petrol on Indeed. that. So it's that's really hitting. Who's that hitting? Working class. Yes. Uh, upwardly mobile, middle class, small to medium sized businesses. Big businesses are just going to pass the price on to us, the consumer. So well done, government, for your brilliant uh, sanctions. Um, so Putin was uh, was meeting yesterday uh, to celebrate the 305th, I think it was, uh, anniversary of the birth of Peter the Great. 
Uh, and uh, this is what he had to say. During that meeting, the West will not be able to cut itself off from Russian gas and oil for several years. I think that's absolutely correct. That's absolutely clear. Uh, but uh, the day before, he was meeting various other top uh, Russian officials by video link. Uh, and he was talking about the Russian economy. And this is what he had to say. Uh, Russia's industrial output increased by 3.9% in the first four months of 2022. However, there was a slight decline in April with a substantial contraction in car manufacturing and oil refining. Well, it's no wonder there's a contraction in oil refining because they're shipping all the, oil, the crude oil out of the country, whereas you've just said it's being refined in India, India and China and so on. So, so they've had a reduction in oil refining. But anyway, he goes on to say, as for the positive results, we know uh, well that we have positive dynamics in agriculture and construction. There are vital backbone, sorry, these are vital backbone branches of our economy, which employ millions of people, millions of specialists. Uh, and he said the growth and strengthening of these branches are decisive for developing entire regions and territories of our country for improving living standards of our people. So he is very much uh, working towards expansion, development. Uh, we're in contraction and destruction. He said improving living standards. Yes. And our, our governments are telling us we need to tighten our belts yes. and get used to less to own nothing and be happy. And we won't be able to heat our homes anymore more jumpers, heat pumps, candles. Yes. Uh, so let's see what the mainstream press very briefly had to say about this. Vladimir Putin paints rosy picture of Russia's crumbling economy, says Newsweek. They're just, it's just constant lies, isn't it? The Express here, Russian economy in crisis, uh, as shopping centers uh, turned into ghost towns. And this is, a, this is an absolute reflection of, of the change in what an economy is to the Western mind. The Western mind sees an economy as the going and spending on your credit card in a shopping center. And if you're not, if the shopping centers aren't full of people taking out more and more credit, then you don't have an economy. Putin's talking about production, production of real physical things mm. and, and, and a proper real physical economy. This is just an asset, asset backed currency. By the way, why are shopping malls empty in Russia? Because of all the Western brands that have vacated right. uh, due to the war and and the, the whole sanctions packaging and all that. So, so it's 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 us that have vacated, and they're saying it's ghost town. Yeah, so, anyway. and and I just end with this because uh, it's it's a bit depressing, but I have to say at least not at least, but it's a bit depressing that it's the Guardian that the Guardian has at least come up with a headline which is relatively correct. Uh, Russia is winning the economic war uh, was the headline from their e uh, economy. Uh, reporter. So there that you took go. took some arm twisting at the editorial. Level, yeah, probably. Sure. Yes. Yes. Okay, let's move on then. And uh, Euronews, uh, Putin told to gather, far, sorry, Poland told to gather firewood amid rising energy prices. And this is quite uh, spectacular, Patrick, because uh, coal is now so expensive. And coal, of course, Poland has been a really uh, a coal-based economy for a very long time. Now they've got they've still got a mining industry in that country, but they still do they have in the recent past been importing coal from Russia as well. Uh, and many people uh, that aren't on the sort of uh, centrally controlled heat networks uh, do have uh, coal-fired central heating. And suddenly it's becoming uh, so expensive that they can't afford to heat their homes anymore. So the government in Poland has seriously suggested that they get out. Uh, with their chainsaws and start chopping down some trees, but but they're not allowed to do that. Those wishing to gather wood must first undergo training and obtain permission from the local forestry unit. Uh, and uh, 
So there you go. So you can't, do you think that's going to hold the polls back? I don't, I know. No, no, I know, well, no, it isn't. I know entrepreneur polls and they'll be out there. They'll find a way to forage and get their firewood no matter what. But it just shows you uh, what a dead end this is. And by the way, the, uh, the silver lining in this is that wood, Mike, did you know, according to the new green uh, religious uh, doctrines, it's a renewable, it's a biofuel now. It's been reclassed. Uh, it has to be the right kind of wood, though. So therefore, wood is now green, uh, apparently. I'm sure they'll find a way to make it work, right? Well, All of these things are flexible, aren't yeah, they? But, uh, but it, is, it is the case that in Poland, you do have to sign multiple forms in triplicate in order to be able to pull a twig off a tree. Uh, so they're very, very strict about about their uh, their trees and I, whether you're allowed to cut them down or not. I feel a black market coming. Yes, perhaps. I feel a black market. Uh, but coming. let's move on to food then quickly. And uh, the United Nations here, the FAO's uh, talking about uh, the s situation in the latest uh, Food and Agriculture Organization report on grain supplies. They're saying they're talking about the first fall in output uh, for quite a long time. Uh, so uh, cereals output in 2021-2022 was uh, 2.784 billion tonnes uh, and in 2022-2023 the estimate is 16 million tonnes less. Now that may not seem like a lot but let's just uh, consider this for a second. Uh, first of all, this is not Russia's fault if there's a fall in output uh, because uh, what have we got here? US winter wheat crop uh, is expected to be down by uh, 6%. Uh, the U.S. Uh, harvest of hard red winter wheat is expected to be down by 21%. Uh, India's wheat crop has been badly damaged by the heat wave in March. Uh, and so their output is going to be down. So this is a global problem. And yes, OK, they do make the point that uh, Ukraine's harvest is going to be less than it has been. Uh, but this is not something which is limited to Ukraine. Uh, and as Putin made the point, Russia's exports on grain continue to, to grow. Uh, so this is not a Russian issue. This is a global issue. And it's one that uh, many Western governments don't seem to be terribly keen to tackle. And the Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian officials just made threats um, yesterday saying that they're, uh, they're not going to let any of their wheat go unless they get security guarantees uh, somehow. What kind of security guarantees? Nobody seems to know. But the, the, there's all sorts of creative thinking going on in Kiev and lots of uh, postmodern vague statements that uh, they seem to be the masters at. So now they're, they're the ones uh, who are threatening to hold up their grain supply to yes. feed Africa and so forth. So again, we're, we're going to be running in circles on this. Okay, uh, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you'd be very welcome as a community member there, or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. But in any case, do share any material you find on the various platforms. And uh, a final reminder that tomorrow uh, we will be hosting the fourth uh, Doctors for COVID Eth Ethics Symposium. Some fantastic speakers that you can see on screen there. It begins at uh, 15.30 UK time, 16.30 uh, European time. Uh, and uh, that'll be on the front page of the UK column website. You'll be able to see that. Um, so let's uh, welcome Vanessa back on to the program properly now. And uh, uh, we're going to have a little chat about the BBC, Vanessa. Yeah, my my favourite subject. Um, we've been covering the propaganda against uh, China reference, the Uyghurs, for the last few weeks. And today what I wanted to do, I can't go into it in the depth that I'd like to, but what I'd like to do is just raise people's awareness to what the BBC is doing in China. And I have to say it's it's playbook propaganda. 
that we've seen elsewhere, but in China, they, they seem to have just, they, it's so blatant. So to start with, we'll just have a look at how the BBC portrayed the alleged Tiananmen Square uh, massacre, um, which was exposed to be uh, a Soros-backed uh, uh, color revolution. Um, a BBC journalist actually admitted in 2009 that uh, the, the massacre in Tiananmen Square didn't actually uh, take place. He actually said, uh, James Miles, that there was no massacre in Tiananmen Square. Protesters who were still in the square when the army reached it were allowed to leave after negotiations with martial law troops. Uh, he then talks about there being a Beijing massacre, but he omits the fact that the majority of those killed in Beijing were security forces armed only with batons and security shields, very reminiscent of the uprising in Syria narratives manufactured uh, predominantly by the BBC. Who do I want to focus on uh, in this report? BBC journalist John Sudworth, who flees China after state harassment campaign, according to the majority of headlines in March 2021. But let's have a look at John Sudworth, who calls himself the John Sudworth on Twitter, which is a little bit pretentious, shall we say. He does put at the top of his profile uh, the Global Times description of him, which I do find quite amusing. The Global Times, of course, is perceived as China state media, but we have to remember that the BBC is British state media, um, although that doesn't appear on their Twitter profile, as, of course, it does to anyone uh, affiliated to Russian or Chinese media. So uh, ooh, can I just quickly go back to that slide yeah. one second? Sorry. So Global Times describes John Sudworth as someone with a serious political prejudice, anti-communist, uh, and a mental issue, which I do find quite amusing, and you'll see why as we continue into the report. So let's see how, I think it's the Foreign Com uh, Correspondent Club in China described his departure. Um, well, of course, they, they play up the, the whole uh, Chinese government harassment, the fact that Sudworth felt uh, under threat, that uh, journalism itself, freedom of press, et cetera, et cetera, is under threat from the Chinese government. I wonder how many of these foreign co correspondent clubs of various countries, I'm assuming, have said anything about Julian Assange and his treatment in the UK. Um, but if we move on from that, so this is the Foreign Correspondent Club of China. Here we have, uh, can you read that top bit for me, please, Mike, because my uh, screen's covering it. Uh, so it says, uh, if you want to know what's been happening in Xinjiang over the past few years, uh, and you've got a spare 14 minutes, watch the extraordinary Chinese state TV report from 2017, uh, which, as we can uh, tell, has gone so far unnoticed to the outside world. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing, you'll see uh, plenty of comments over pretty much all of John Sudworth's uh, reports from inside China very similar to the one that you see there. John Sudworth is always a liar working for the BBC. If you are in China and in Xinjiang, you will know that people can live and work freely. There is a link to the original video to show the truth behind the lies made up by the BBC and John Sudworth. Now, if you click on uh, the version, John Sudworth's version, surprise, surprise, it's been removed from YouTube. But if you go forward to uh, the actual uh, video, 
Yes. Okay. So, so we'll, if uh, Stephanie, right. if you could, <laughs> yeah, Stephanie, if you could put video one on, please. So let's play that. But the group wasn't about to give up just yet. To encourage the villagers, they enlisted the help of Huriet Ugabla from Yitian County, some 300 kilometers from Pishan. She was among the first batch of girls from Xinjiang to be sent to Zhejiang province, where she worked in a textile factory. She's now a veteran worker and manager. Villagers listened intently as she told them about her experiences. After answering questions, she went to talk to other girls in the village. And she proved convincing. A newly married girl was willing to go. Her husband's a cook, so the recruiter said they'd help him find a job too. Ah. Officials were able to convince the company to take in the couple. And after much convincing, seven villagers from Konabaza and Maza East villages agreed to go, including Musna. It was the first time in many years for the village to send their people to another province. On the eve of the girls' departure, villagers held a farewell party for them. After completing their training at Pishan Vocational High School, nearly 100 girls were ready to go. Most of them were leaving home for the first time. Their families came to say goodbye, carrying their hopes and dreams. Right, Vanessa, I'm going to okay. apologize. I'm just going to apologize because that was the wrong video. That is the, that is the original yeah, video fine. that the BBC uh, took their report from. And we don't have the BBC one here. But the point here is oh, they, no. okay. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, but the point here yeah, is that okay. that video, they took shots from that video and they produced an absolute uh, piece of propaganda Travesty. led by yeah, Hugh I mean, Edwards. Yes. Uh, well, he was the, the anchor back in, in Britain, but yes. John Sudworth was the actual reporter on the ground using a Chinese uh, media documentary demonstrating, in fact, and you can see from that little clip that they are not forcing these girls to leave their family. They're effectively offering them an opportunity, which, which also uh, ultimately will, will bring um, uh, wages, much needed wages to these uh, very poor areas. So again, it's this, uh, the war by China on poverty includes the Uyghur communities, but how the BBC portrayed it, of course, is that this was the uh, forcing of these girls into forced labor, <laughs> a completely different, and, and they literally, it's a shame, but people can go to YouTube and find that video very easily. You can see well, exactly the link will, how the link will be under this program. Um, edited. So, yes, yeah. we'll, we'll okay, provide brilliant. the link. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, so um, go on. Sorry. No, go ahead. So, uh, carrying on with with John uh, Sudworth, we have again here. He he made a report called uh, China's 
uh, tainted cotton, where he talks about, again, forced labor in the cotton industry. Now, as part of that report, if people again go and watch it on YouTube, you will see a section where John Sudworth is claiming that he was attacked or harassed um, by uh, Chinese officials. Um, and you'll see again another comment on Twitter. I highly question the evidence mentioned in the video when the evidence was entirely uh, based on narratives and flashes, again, of random clips and snapshot of media reports. As a Chinese speaker myself, the translation of terminology was most maliciously, maliciously biased. BBC, you can do better. But I, just remembering that in this report, uh, and, and another important factor, Mike, in the clip that we couldn't show is that um, this guy, Adrian Zentz, that I've spoken about before in previous reports that is funded by the NED, by the CIA, who has a mission uh, to destroy communism globally. So I'm sure he's completely objective in his reporting. Um, he is effectively the, the version of Malinkat working against China and providing pretty much all the evidence. Um, to the BBC, and in particular to John Sudworth. Uh, am I assuming we don't have... Oh, right, okay. <laughs> we don't have the video? Okay. Uh, uh, it's, the, it's the second one. This one. He can take me at my word. I have not taken any footage of him or pictures of him. <clears throat> and he will not be seeing pictures of him on, the tel on any of our reports. But in the BBC's report, we still find him Mr. So basically what happened is Sudworth um, included the clip of a civilian that the BBC had been filming against his uh, will, basically, and uh, claimed that that was Chinese officials harassing him to stop filming. So again... Um, extraordinary uh, sort of uh, propaganda created uh, by uh, John Sudworth. Then uh, let's have a look at what happens when uh, British people living in China raise complaints regarding uh, Sudworth's reporting, for example, with the BBC complaints department. Silence. What happens when China itself, when the Chinese foreign ministry raises reports regarding um, British propaganda? Um, the BBC issues a statement. We stand by our accurate and fair reporting of events in China and totally reject these unfounded accusations of fake news or ideological bias. Remember, Adrian Zentz, who's providing the majority of the information upon which the BBC bases its reports, has a God-given mission to destroy communism. The BBC is the world's most trusted international news broadcaster, says the BBC, reporting to a global audience of more than 400 million people weekly without fear or favor, and in accordance with our editorial standards. Um, no comment. <laughs> Right. This is uh, John Sudworth um, after he uh, left uh, China for Taiwan. Uh, interesting that he is in Taiwan, which of course now is the target of destabilization um, by the West uh, in order to impact, of course, negatively on China itself. But uh, can we watch that video, Mike? Intensified in recent weeks and months, uh, including um, a pretty intense propaganda 
campaign uh, targeted uh, not just at the BBC, but at me personally and at my reporting. Um, we have faced legal threats and um, increased surveillance and harassment whenever and wherever we try to, uh, to film. And given those um, risks and difficulties, uh, very reluctantly, um, we decided, along with the BBC, that um, we should relocate, um, that, that we had kind of reached a limit. And um, as a result, we are now uh, here in Taipei. Um, interestingly, you know, even our departure, um, followed by plainclothes policemen uh, through the departure hall of the airport. So a, a reminder right to the very end, if you like, of the, the grim reality of reporting in China. Um, would you trust this guy? Actually, the first clip there is where he's claiming it's Chinese officials assaulting him to prevent him filming, when in reality it was a civilian that didn't want him to film him. Now, how did the BBC respond to this? Uh, BBC China correspondent John Sudworth moves to Taiwan after threats. Did the BBC accept any responsibility whatsoever for the propaganda produced by John Sudworth? No, it didn't. It, it basically uh, supported his reporting 100%. The Global Times, okay, China state media, but this has been confirmed by a number of independents working inside China and who have visited Xinjiang. Uh, prior to John Sudworth's department, a number of individuals in Xinjiang planned to sue the BBC for producing fake news, spreading rumors about Xinjiang and slandering China's policy in the region. Uh, Zhu Justang, deputy director of the publicity department of the Communist Party of China, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region Committee, said at a Xinjiang-related press conference held by the Chinese Foreign Ministry in Beijing on March the 18th. So I'm sure that had nothing to do with the BBC withdrawing from China at that point. In a sense, is, is, is the sort of the king, uh, the godfather of, of anti-China uh, mm -hmm. propaganda, but the, all these people, Luke Harding, uh, Bellingcat, all of these these same characters, their job is basically to do the bidding of whatever the United States, the British government, intelligence services, NATO, whatever they want, whatever lines they want pushed, that's what they do. Or or the National Endowment for Democracy, same thing. Yeah. So they, they're not they're not real journalists. They are absolutely paid propagandists, and they're paid very well, by the way. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you, thank you very much for that, Vanessa. Uh, let's. Uh, Let's move on to this then. Uh, quantitative tightening, uh, protecting monetary policy from the fiscal uh, encroachment one year on. This is from uh, a think tank called the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. So let's just have a look at what they're saying. Uh, governments in many countries are ill-prepared for long periods of higher inflation and rising interest rates. Quantitative easing meant that a significant part of official debt uh, took the form of commercial bank deposits at the central bank uh, of, well, whichever bank, or, bank it happened to be. Uh, when policy rates were close to zero, uh, this was a very cheap form uh, of finance. But the policy has the drawback of making official interest rate payments uh, more sensitive to changes in policy interest rates, perhaps attempting governments to put pressure on the central bank to go easy on interest rate hikes. Um, and uh, the United Kingdom is one case in point. They said, 
In July 2021, bankers' reserves at the Bank of England had reached £840 billion and were still rising. Uh, as an insurance policy against such financial risks and to protect the independence of monetary policy, we recommended that the Treasury undertake a large-scale swap of bankers' reserves at the Bank of England for newly issued short and medium-dated fixed interest rate government securities, in other words, government bonds. Uh, the authorities did not act promptly on this recommendation. The Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee has begun to respond by, uh, to rising inflation by increasing short-term interest rates. However, by not undertaking the swap that we recommended, the monetary and debt management authorities missed the opportunity to buy uh, interest rate insurance uh, when it was unusually cheap. In July last year, two-year gilt uh, yields were no higher than 0.1%. Uh, the interest rate insurance that the government could have bought in July 2021 has now become much more expensive. Uh, we estimate the loss over the past year at around £11 billion. Uh, such a lost opportunity is an unnecessary cost to the public finances at a very difficult time. So that's what they're saying. So Rishi Sunak has lost the country £11 billion. Patrick, uh, I just wanted to contrast that with Gordon Brown, uh, who when he sold the gold, you know, half the gold that the UK held in reserve, uh, only lost the country £8.3 billion. Uh, but here we have uh, uh, the uh, bullion by post asking the question, was this the world worst deal in UK history, 20 years since Brown sold Britain's gold? Well, it may have been the worst deal in UK history, uh, but Rishi Sunak has outdone that uh, and has now produced the, the worst deal in UK history. Uh, another bung to his mates in the city, it seems. Oh, it doesn't stop there. The, the hemorrhaging won't end there, Mike. Uh, uh, 400 quid for every man, woman and child and homeowner and every property. If you own 100 properties, you get 400 per property. That's Rishi Sunak's little, uh, his latest uh, eat out to help out scheme, yes. right? That's going to cost people uh, a fortune by the end of the year in inflation. So every decision that the Chancellor Exchequer is making is fueling the inflation crisis. You can't just turn the magic money tree on and just print away and expect that that's not going to have any effect on how much did they blow on PPE? Uh, we're going to come on to that in a couple of minutes. And what happened to the 40 billion on test and trace? Do you remember that? Where did that go? Who? who uh, Serco? Whose, po whose pockets did that end up in? I mean, t we can't afford to lose such money at such a difficult time. Yeah. Well, they've been doing that like crazy for the last That's two the, years. Yeah. The, the level of waste and uh, you, you shut down an economy like the UK for a year and a half. And now, now we are reaping the whirlwind of that, okay? It doesn't take a genius to, to work out who is responsible. It's government policy that's responsible, not the virus, not Putin. Indeed. So, uh, well, let's move on to health matters and Vernon Coleman. Well, collateral damage, the NHS, the National Health Service. And here's a piece penned by Dr. Vernon Coleman just today, the death of healthcare in Britain. And this is a scathing a scathing uh, uh, indictment of the NHS here. And he goes on just to, to, to paint the picture. An old man in the hospital had received no nursing care for a week. He hadn't fed, wasn't fed for three days. He asked a nurse if he could be bathed. She brought him a damp paper towel and told him to do it himself. And he goes on, a 92-year-old former ward sister was told that she had terminal liver failure. The doctor apparently conducted an examination via video link. Uh, a face-to-face -face, face -face visit was refused. Uh, taken 
by, uh, taken by a relative to a local A&E department, the woman was diagnosed with a simple infection, treated with antibiotics. Three days later, she made a full recovery. Uh, there had only been a 12-hour wait uh, on a ward trolley. And again, a patient was admitted to a hospital as an emergency, um, had, to wait for, had to wait for 49 hours before a bed could be found uh, for him. And a patient with a broken arm in great pain was told by an ambulance service that her condition wasn't life-threatening and that the wait would be eight uh, hours here. And so in summation, hospitals are so badly run that millions of people would rather stay home, even if that means dying alone and without medical care. Hospital staff have taken away dignity and hope. Even these are among the most valuable things a doctor or nurse can offer. They have replaced hope and dignity with despair and disillusionment. And he goes on here, waiting lists are now so long that most patients will die before they are treated. The NHS has more money than it needs, but most of that money is wasted on administrators. There are more of those than there are beds and nurses. And so that's Dr. Vernon Coleman, but uh, do you want to comment? No, no, that, that, I think that's, that's a, a spectacular article. It is, and you can go to his website there, uh, vernoncoleman.org, and I'll take you there. And so what is he talking about? Well, this was, it wasn't that long ago. This was just in November of 2020. Look at this, COVID-19, UK spent an extra 10 billion on PPE, personal protective equipment, due to inadequate supply report fines. And Vernon really says, we're still addicted to PPE. Let's bring back Vernon Coleman here to comment on this. Doctors and hospitals who have been told to abandon crazy COVID rules, masks, hand sanitizers, social distancing, uh, are like children holding on to comfort blankets, insisting on clinging to these uh, insanities. It's been proven that masks, sanitizers, and social distancing did far more harm than good but no one in healthcare understands science anymore, says Dr. Vernon Coleman. So I, I, I say, go read this article, share it with everybody you know. It's, it's really fantastic. He's broken down in, in the way that Vernon Coleman does so well in all his, his books, example after example after example, and a scathing uh, indictment at the end. So it's, it's an important article. He basically said, if you took all the money that it takes to run the NHS and shared it out to the people, Everybody could get first-class private health care, as it stands right now with the state of the NHS. Yes. That's not a good situation. Um, well, his, uh, his article is extremely well-timed and prescient uh, because addicted to PPE, let's bring some PPE on screen. Uh, and what are we going to do with all the PPE that we bought over the last few years? Uh, well, we're going to set it on fire. That's what we're going to do. Uh, so this is the Public Accounts Committee. Uh, four billion pounds of unusable PPE bought in the first year of the pandemic will be burnt to generate power. So let's have a look at what they said here. Uh, having spent, uh, what's that, 12 billion pounds on PPE, the government, uh, the department has uh, four billion of PPE in storage that will not be used in the NHS and now faces the challenges and costs of its disposal. The department has written uh, 8.7 billion pounds off the value of the 12 billion pounds it spent on PPE in 2020-2021. Uh, the department spent 4 billion on PPE, which didn't meet NHS standards and therefore has remained unused. It also bought uh, 817 million items of PPE costing 673 million pounds, uh, which are defective and cannot be used, donated or sold to anyone. 
This includes masks identified as being counterfeit and gowns that are not water repellent. Additionally, £2.6 billion of PPE purchased have not been used in the NHS, as while meeting technical standards are not the type of standard prefer preferred by, for use by NHS workers, a further £4.7 billion was written down to reflect that the market price uh, at the year end was lower than the price paid at the height of the pandemic. The department now needs to pay for the disposal of millions of items of PPE and is appointing two commercial waste partners to help them dispose of 15,000 pallets a month, 15,000 pallets a month via a combination of recycling and burning to generate power. Uh, the costs and environmental impact of disposing of the uh, excess of unusable PPE is unclear. Yeah, no kidding. It's all made of uh, polyester materials and yes. microfibers, and you're just going to burn it. It's sort of like Solian Green scene there, sending it up a conveyor belt. Absolutely ridiculous. So, so why all the PPE? How did we survive as a human race? How did the NHS survive all those years after the war without, the, without all the PPE? And they're saying, well, no, it's different now because of COVID. Mm. COVID's different. It's a special virus, and we need all of this PPE, right? When is the gag going to finish? Like, when is the theatrics going to be over? This is all theater. It's, it's bankrupting the National Health Service. Yes. And it's driving probably more people out of that profession because it's absolute hell working on those wards, especially in, in the summer months, it's even worse, strapped up with masks and visors and God knows respirators, God knows what else, having to change your gown. I mean, it's ridiculous. They went completely OTT, but somebody is making an absolute fortune. Yes, and that money, of, of course, is not being used for frontline healthcare and it's resulting in deaths, as we're going to show again in a second. But before we get onto that, uh, One Health. So I just want to introduce people to this uh, very important article uh, we have published up at 21stCenturyWire.com. The title is One Health, Globalist Path to a One World Order. And this is by a French journalist, uh, Freddy Ponton, who's uh, filed a spectacular uh, research and, uh, and research article here on One Health. What is One Health? You probably heard Sanjay Javid uh, say this term at the World Health Summit. All of the world leaders are all chiming in, One Health, One Health, what is it? Well, take a look at this article and you'll be able to sort of get a, a sort of a snapshot of it. It's, it's one of the longest pieces we've ever published. Um, it's probably five or six, 7,000 words, I'm not sure. But basically what One Health is, and when you, when you go through this, you'll see all the various details of it. This is uh, combining uh, human health, animal health, environment, climate change, and security in what's called the Global Health Security Agenda. This is now uh, ratified across all the major stakeholders, the WHO, all of the various uh, other UN bodies, and uh, it's all based on one of the main things is zoonosis, the zoonotic transfer of viruses from animals to humans. It's, it's uh, ratifying a biosurveillance uh, doctrine, and so this is uh, and it's part of a one economy. So the new economy is a threat-based economy and it encompasses all within this One Health agenda. This has been building for 15 years. This is the framework and the architecture for what looks like a, a very important first building block of an embryonic global government, mm. okay? So they've got buy-in from every single major uh, G7 and G20 country and also all of the stakeholders in this. It, this is the public-private partnership uh, uh, framework, okay? 
And Freddie has basically got all of the information on this from the beginning when it was first mentioned. It names all the players, all the documents are here, all the links. So this is a resource for other journalists to go look at. And already, uh, this was already uh, talked about on mainstream uh, media in France uh, just in the last 48 hours. So it's already made its way out uh, through those channels. So we're going to talk more about this next week. I'll give a little more of a detailed analysis of what One Health is. But you'll start hearing this word more and more. COVID-19 was the trigger, was the primer for the One Health agenda. Yeah, okay. And uh, just uh, coming back to the, the deaths issue then, uh, last week we showed this uh, graph from the Office for National Statistics. Let's let bring it uh, up to date. It's another week of excess mortality uh, from uh, at, at this point in the year. Um, and that's even bearing in mind that the uh, a five-year average now includes the excess, uh, the extra deaths from, from the previous uh, uh, two years. So um, it's, uh, uh, it's quite a significant situation. The Daily Skeptic is putting the figure of 5,000 excess deaths on this. Uh, and they're saying private homes. And th this is the key point because on that report that the ONS used to publish on, on deaths and so on, uh, they used to provide a graph showing where the excess mortality was happening, whether it be in, in hospitals, in care homes, in private homes, or in other settings. They don't publish that graph anymore, right? So uh, this first line on screen here, private homes, care homes, and hospitals are all experiencing excess deaths at present. So in private homes is 23.4% excess deaths, 6.5% in care homes, and 5.3% uh, in hospitals. And so why has it been consistently the case that there have been excess mortality in private homes? Well, it's because, of course, people are being chucked out of hospitals or they can't get into hospitals in the first place. And so they're dying at homes in homes. Now, uh, the Daily Skeptic is, is making the correlation between uh, the timing of this and uh, uh, the rollout of the boosters to older people. Uh, that may be part of it. I don't think it's we're in a position to say 100% that that is what the reason is. I think a large part of it is what Vernon Coleman has been talking about in that article and what we've been talking about, uh, Debbie Evans in her article on the ambulance service, for example. The throttling of the, the NHS. The, the throttling of the destruction and the absolutely non-functioning state of the NHS at the moment. Um, so uh, we are seeing excess mortality and it is another crime, really, that nobody in politics and nobody in the media is focusing on this in any way. That just speaks to the level of corruption in politics and media. They don't want to draw any attention to anything that might undermine uh, their sort of uh, uh, non-achievements yes. over the last two years. So, um, And speaking of non-achievements, we talked about the United States tried to launch a board of disinformation governance. You remember that story? Yes. And that crazy uh, partisan activist, uh, Nina Jankovic, 33-year-old, um, she was supposed to be put in charge of it. Well, there's been a little bit of a development on this story. And you remember there was denials by the government saying this wasn't about spying on Americans or citizens. This was about uh, uh, monitoring cartels, putting out disinformation for migrants and coyotes and whatnot. So actually, no. Disinformation board leaked documents, exposed agenda behind the Department of Homeland Security's Ministry of Truth. And get a load of this. Leaks described how newly deputized partisan operatives installed in the DHS had planned to coordinate efforts to leverage ties with social media platforms to enable the removal of user content. That's what it was for. This is what the uh, Disinformation Board of Government was for. And this was targeting uh, uh, regular citizens, 
These are people who might have dissenting views on vaccines, on Ukraine, on anything like this. Mm. Okay, so this is uh, Senator Josh Hawley and Chuck Grassley. They're both uh, Republican senators. We've got a clip here from uh, Josh Hawley, who was just uh, talking about this in the last 24 hours. Well, let's go ahead and uh, roll this clip. Yeah, that's exactly right. As it turns out, Tucker, the people that the Biden administration thinks are the real threat to America, it's not the drug cartels, it's not foreign threats, it, it's you, it's the American people. Yeah. If you have questions about COVID, if you have questions about COVID masks, if you have questions about the COVID vaccine, this administration wanted you to be monitored. This disinformation board was set up to go after you. That's what the documents say. By the way, election integrity, same story. The documents specifically mention that they needed to be a disinformation board because some people were having questions about election integrity. Some people had questions about January 6th. Well, we couldn't have that. And this board was set up to monitor that. That was what was in their sights. And I tell you, Tucker, it, it just gives the lie to what they were saying in public. So the federal government partnering with private companies to censor Americans who criticize Pfizer is unconstitutional, isn't it? Yeah, you would sure think so. I mean, this idea that the government is going to stand up an institution that's going to monitor American speech, that's going to treat Americans' political speech, Tucker, core political speech about political issues as something that needs to be monitored, that needs to be countered. This was going to be a, a state propaganda machine. This board was supposed to push out counter information to Americans who are raising questions, and yes, to partner with big tech. The whole idea here in the documents show this is that the government would get together with big tech and collect information on Americans who were raising these questions. I mean, how dare you? That's the whole idea here, is that the government and big tech, these companies would partner together in this massive censorship campaign. It is truly, truly chilling. A total merger, a merger of government mm. and these huge uh, monopolistic uh, big tech firms. And so they wanna control the entire speech um, uh, landscape. That's, there, there's no doubt about that. So we don't need to be suspicious or conspiracy theorized. No, this is actually what's happening right now. Yeah. And so in the UK, they've got a slightly different style. Well, they're attempting to do it through legislate, le legislation and the same in the EU, they're attempting to use legislation. In the United States, they can't use legislation because that would be uh, unconstitutional. So they just set up these, well, effectively unconstitutional bodies instead and hope that people don't notice. And hope that people don't notice. Well, they did notice, unfortunately. So imagine that you've got questions about election fraud and that's your, that speech is now prohibited. So isn't that kind of dangerous if, if somebody got into power that actually could carry out election fraud and you're not even allowed to ask questions or have any sort of you know yes. transparency or accountability. Well, the show trial is on in the United States. That's what this is about. The January 6th trial. So this is this is uh there's no opposition. This is the first time there's ever been a political um, congressional hearing and there's no political opposition present. Yeah. Okay, so you, they can't cross-examine any of these witnesses. Um, there's no uh, counter narrative at all. So that's what it is. So that's all well and good. I mean, that would have been in totally within character during, let's say, what, 1930s, Stalin, Soviet Union, perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. But no, this is 2022 uh, in the United States of America, mm -hmm. the free world, the bastion of democracy. Uh, free speech. Yeah. So the, the, the whole point of the January 6th uh, show trial is to prevent Donald Trump from running for president in 2024. But not just that, they want to basically knock out 
congressmen, senators, mm. uh, people, potential future cabinet appointments, even for other uh, GOP nominees. So this is total politicization of the Justice Department, of the Congress, and they're doing it out in the, in the open right now. And the reason people aren't as outraged about this is because most of the media is just not even covering it in that way. They hired a producer from Good Morning America to basically stage manage this hearing. Can you believe that? They've got these edited documentaries, and it's, it's a complete prop, agitprop uh, stage show. I mean, it's, it's really disgusting, but I think, I think this is gonna backfire badly uh, on the Democrats. Uh, midterms are coming, it's not looking good. It's not looking good for, for Blue, for Team Blue. Okay, thank you very much for that. Let's end with a final slide here, Patrick, from Bob. Bob Moran, the legendary cartoonist, and this is his latest masterpiece, Mike. Um, if It's self-explanatory. This is the mother saying to the little child, how was school today? And the second <laughs> frame, he is, uh, yes. Throwing up a rainbow. Yeah, he's, re yes. he's regurgitating uh, the, 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 all the rainbow uh, propaganda and agenda. And the, yeah. puberty blockers and everything else. So poor kid. But anyway, what a masterpiece. Yes. What a great cartoonist. Bob is a great cartoonist. Okay, we'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you very much for joining us, Patrick. Thank you, Vanessa. We will do a short extra uh, in a moment. Uh, so if you're on the main UK Call members live stream, stick around for that. Uh, and uh, well, otherwise, we'll see you hopefully tomorrow for the Doctors for COVID Ethics Symposium and then Monday, as usual, for the UK Column News. Hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you then.